thank you for inviting me. It's always a privilege and a pleasure to be here, especially having been here a few times and met a different set of um, visiting uh, fellows. Um, in the past, I've spoken mostly about aspects of journalism. In today's talk, uh, it's slightly broader than that. As the title suggests, it is actually rather big topic for uh, an hour or so that I have got uh, with me. But I think it's important to understand the cultural aspects of communication. I don't think um, enough importance is given to it in, in global interactions. And what is also missing is a kind of historical context. In most studies of communication, it is relatively recent modes of communication, uh, more technological modes of communication which are taken into account. And my endeavor in today's presentation would be to take a little bit of tour of history and then look also towards the end of my talk for what is likely to happen, what is coming, particularly in the context of the digital revolution. Um, is there a, an Indian internet to emerge um, in the next decade or so? The talk is obviously based on uh, this book which has just been published, actually it came out in November. It's exorbitantly expensive. I think it's, um, I don't know, $100 or something like that. It's, it's insanely expensive. So those of you who have affiliations with universities or, or institutions, please get a copy. Otherwise, wait for a few years, uh, at least a year. We'll ho hopefully get a um, paperback. And those from India, I'm hoping that they'll have an Indian edition. So uh, it will be noticed um, in, in, in India. The idea of the book has a, a little history about three years ago, 2011, I organized a conference in London, uh, our India Media Center organized a conference on India's soft power and looking at it from a communication perspective. It was a pioneering event. And while I was organizing that conference, I was reading around what was actually available to the scholar or to a policy analyst, and it was very little. In fact, there were two articles that I found, one by a German scholar, another, interestingly, by a Chinese scholar based in Sydney. And these were not particularly detailed or, indeed, insightful pieces. So I thought this, this is an area which really deserves a bit more research and investigation. And its currency as a concept, as we all know, is really great the last 20 years since the, the, the term was coined uh, in an article that came out in Foreign Policy by Joseph Nye in 1990. This has become a very interesting area of, uh, of research within international relations and also increasingly in communication. So what is the um, notion of soft power? To put it in its most simplest form, and this is um, Joseph Nye's definition, Professor Joseph Nye, who coined the phrase, the ability to attract people to our side without coercion, and legitimacy being central to soft power. As most of you know, uh, Professor um, Joseph Nye is a distinguished political scientist based at Harvard University. And as this concept has evolved, he has moved from pure soft power to what he's described as smart power, which is both 
combination of hard and soft power. I think it's also important to remind ourselves this, besides being a very distinguished scholar, Joseph Nye also has close association with US government. He was in fact under um, Clinton, under Secretary for Defense for International Security. He also worked under Carter administration and today he co-chairs a, um, a very influential think tank called Cyber Security Project which is for the Center for New American uh, Security. So his academic work cannot be entirely divorced from its policy, policy implications. And it is interesting that the concept of soft power emerges from the United States, the most important hard power in terms of especially military power, but also economically the most important uh, country in the world. Its American orientation is very obvious. The idea came from America. And, and these quotations from Professor Nye's later work show that. It's about how we should use power to promote our interests. And as you see in the quotation, it's an American interest, very clearly defined. It is also an indication of the intellectual hegemony that American academia, American media, American think tanks have, that the concept has been globalized. And it has become, in recent years, a kind of mini-industry within international relations. Uh, many governments have set up task force to study soft power. China has published at least six books on soft power in English. I'm sure there are many more in Mandarin. So it's become a trendy subject. Now, but when I started thinking about it, I thought, well, you know, India is not a hard power. India is a more complicated, uh, you know, country. Complicated civilization, in fact. Although, one shouldn't forget, it is also, in terms of purchasing power parity, the third largest economy in the world. And despite all the noise about how badly they're doing economically, they grew at 5% last year. So there is, an, there is, an, there is a hard power dimension to this, too. And it's interesting that the debate on soft power in India also has emerged at a time when India is economically and and in terms of hard power, becoming more pronounced. But I want to take you a little bit further back in history. The concept of power itself is very complicated, and I don't think this is the occasion to uh, problematize um, what that entails. I would rather talk about influence. And that influence, in the case of India, has a very old and complicated history. So if we go back to, to the very old times, there's an interesting idea of the so-called Sanskrit cosmopolis, a elite, elite network of educated people in a large part of the world, which, in the words of um, Sheldon Pollock, who has written a fantastic book about um, Sanskrit as a language, he talks about the celebration of aesthetic power. So there was a time and that goes on for many, many centuries, when this was a language of intellectual discourse and high aesthetics for a large part of the known world. It is no coincidence, when we, when we talk about European languages, we talk about Indo-European languages, not European Indian, Indo languages. That 
um, might be interesting in itself, how it is framed. One of the things that Joseph Noy talks about is the intellectual power of soft power. He talks about you know, from Harvard to Hollywood. And I'll come to the Hollywood version later when I talk about Bollywood. But there is a tradition of intellectual discourse and debate which goes back a very, very long time in India. The media stereotypes and reality of contemporary India, which is that it is one of the most unequal societies in the world, with the largest number of poor people living in one area. There's greater poverty in India even today, despite massive expansion of economy, than in sub-Saharan Africa. But actually there is a, um, in terms of influence, intellectual tradition that goes back a very, very long time, all the way back to before Christ. This is uh, a place in Pakistan today. Uh, it is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. For a very long time, it, it used to be a very important source of learning. And if you ask an educated person in Europe, or indeed in many other parts of the world, <clears throat> whether they have heard of it, and they will likely say, well, it's got nothing to do with knowledge. Bologna, yes. Oxford, yes. <laughs> but you know, that's, that's not knowledge. But actually, this was there for, for centuries and was a center of learning, especially Buddhist learning, for a very long time. And if you think about Buddhism, which is the title of my book, is that hard or soft power? It has been there across many parts of Asia for more than 2,000 years. It has defined cultures. It's enduring power. It's not MTV. It's not Hollywood. It's much more substantial influence in terms of how um, societies live. Um, as you know, it was founded, Buddhism was founded, uh, Buddha was born in India in the 6th century BC. Buddhism was the first and most serious social revolution in Indian history. It was against the uh, Brahmanical uh, Hindu tradition of hierarchy and, and discrimination. It was about egalitarianism and it was about social justice. These pictures, uh, I took them in a, a museum in uh, Beijing. Um, Beijing has one of the most sophisticated um, collection of Buddhist art. Although China is not a religious country, but it's home to the largest number of Buddhists today. While India, uh, in India, Buddhism is uh, you know, a minority religion. But it spread across Asia, um, and that went on for a millennia, from Southeast Asia to East Asia to Central Asia, even all the way to Egypt. And there are stories in you know, several biblical traditions that there is uh, you know, Buddhist connection with uh, what happened in that part of the world. So there is a very old story to be told about influence. And it's not about journalism or mass media. It is something more profound and, and historically grounded. Here's another example. Now, how many of you have heard of this? You know. Good. Huen Xiang, his name was. But it was the center of learning in Asia for many years, for the 5th to 12th century. And it was not just a religious institution. Very sophisticated research on mathematics, on logic, on philosophy. It was destroyed by um, 
the Turks, the Khiljis who were ruling North India said, this is idol worship, this is, you know, this is an, against our religion. They burnt the, what, what was then the biggest library in the world. It's interesting that in the last two years, there is a project, a pan-Asian project to revive Nalanda. The project is headed by Amrit Sain, the Nobel Prize winning uh, and very eminent economist. It has <coughs> intervention from Singapore, China, India, um, and it's, it's a very interesting project. They're actually, they're rebuilding the university on the site where um, these reunions exist. And they do exist in Eastern India. So, Joseph Nye's idea of Harvard being an influential uh, you know, institution, I think one has to see that in the context of the, the, there are other older, more complicated histories. Move to a little um, more familiar period. Is Gandhi hard power or soft power? I mean, he fought the most powerful empire of, his, of its time with ahimsa, nonviolence, and satyagraha, you know, fighting for truth. And as an idea, it's an extremely powerful idea, and an idea which resonates even today. In fact, most recently in Delhi, I mean, yesterday, Chief Minister of Delhi was on strike, hunger strike, outside the Home Ministry. Yes? And Tagore, who um, was the first, Rabindranath Tagore, he was a great poet and philosopher. He was the first non-European, non-Western to get a Nobel Prize for literature in 1913. He's the most translated foreign author, uh, poet in China after Shakespeare. He was the first to set up China studies in a university that he created in India, called it Vishwabharati, the global university, in 1920s. So Tagore's globalism is soft and is intellectually grounded. Read Tagore, he's fantastically interesting. So there is that history too, more, more recent history, which has very strong soft power um, components. And then Nehru who um, was the first Prime Minister of India. The formative years of in independent India were shaped by him to a very large extent. Certainly, its foreign policy was shaped by him. He was the foreign minister during his <coughs> tenure as Prime Minister. And he had a view, where should India, not just India, where should the newly independent nations of Africa, Asia, those uh, you know, the Arab countries who are fighting against colonialism and emerging as new states, in this bipolar world, where should they figure? What should be their strategy? He was arguably the most articulate voice of, the South wasn't the phrase used then, the third world. And the idea of non-alignment, that you don't have to align with either Moscow or Washington, and you can have your independent foreign policy, was quite important in Indian thinking, Indian universities, Indian media. And although, in today's um, age of neoliberalism and increasing um, affiliations with the US um, systems, think tanks, universities, etc., the discourse is changing. Now it's seen as a weakness that, you know, we should have gone with the Americans and we would have benefited uh, much more uh, with the market. But I have my reservations about that. Um, so, that also gave India a voice which was disproportionate to its economic power. It was exceptionally poor 
during the time of Nehru. It was dependent on foreign aid for food. When the Brits left us, the uh, average lifespan of an Indian was 28 years. Literacy was 18%, one eight. But you know, we'll, we'll speak at the UN. We will have this you know, non-alignment. We have to have a voice. We have to have you know, international uh, discourse. We have to be part of that discourse. And that was a kind of soft power that India has in, had in international affairs under Nehru's um, legacy. So I've done a bit of history. I've talked about uh, a bit of politics. There's also a um, more interesting part of India, which is um, the spiritual India, the celebratory religiosity of India, the plurality of its religious traditions. There's no book. You can choose your god, right? There are millions of them. Now here are the pictures of, some of you might recognize them, um, Acharya Rajneesh, a uh, uh, guy with black cap, famously described as the sex guru, because he was particularly popular in America. He made a lot of money <laughs> by uh, exporting spiritualism. And Mahesh Yogi, who set up a transcendental meditation university, which used to exist in Holland, I don't know whether it's still going. And then who can miss Hare Krishna's? Um, any major city in the West, you will find them singing the... Um, and, and, and giving free, free food to students in, um, you know, SOAS, School of Foreign African Studies. You, every day you can get free meal. Um, and of course, there's the yoga industry, which defines a kind of Indian connection. Um, and these things matter because they create a certain perception of a country or a culture or a civilization. And it is, especially yoga has now become a kind of um, industry, uh, especially in the West, especially in the United States. Then you have the, the cultural side of things. The classical Indian dance, classical poetry, classical music has a presence although the numbers are very limited in terms of the audience for these. This is a picture from New York, um, part of um, the Festival of India. But in terms of what defines popular India, it's not this high, high end of culture, uh, pretty sophisticated, uh, you know, grounded, but it is the more popular variety. And that's where the the Hollywood part of Joseph Nye's come into, comes into my talk, that there is a big popular cinema in India which defines India for foreigners. One of the great privileges of my job is I travel a lot. And when people find out you're from India, they think about extreme poverty, which is understandable. There's lots of very, very poor people who live in India. But if they want to think something positive, they think of this cinema, which is this colorful, bright, loud, kitsch, whatever. No? song and dance. It doesn't matter which part of the world they come from, but there is that kind of perception of this cinema, which actually is a very big industry in itself. In fact, the largest film industry in the world in terms of the number of films they produce. Mm -hmm. Every year, a billion more people buy tickets for Hindi films than they do for um, Hollywood. There's also um, interesting, especially in the British context, um, diasporic dimension to it. These two examples uh, I picked from British uh, films which um, are made by a British-based uh, filmmaker who is of Indian origin, uh, Gurbinder Chadha, and both these films did well 
uh, and they were kind of an indication of mainstreaming of a particular kind of cinema. So they were not aimed at a diasporic audience, they were aimed at a uh, mainstream audience and that audience did actually appreciate the films very much. More recently we had um, example of Slumdog Millionaire which did uh, very well and its Bollywoodized version especially this last sequence in the film was um, another and was you know shown in various countries uh, dubbed in various languages around the world and remember this was a this is a British film on Indian theme. It wasn't a Bollywood film in that sense. But it was playing on the Bollywood codes and conventions. And more recently, most recently, we have the, at the theatre, um, in fact running in London, the Merchants of Bollywood. So this is something which you see actually quite a lot, in certainly in, in, in metropolitan centres in the world, and increasingly defining a popular perception of India and arguably being part of India's soft power. Although, unlike the US, the Indian government has been extremely lukewarm about using this massive industry to promote itself, uh, promote the country or promote its interests, Bollywood has achieved what, what it has despite the government. In fact, it was only in the year 2000 that the government gave the industry the status of an industry. Before that, it was not even considered an industry, which means that if you wanted to make a film, you could not legitimately borrow money from a bank or insure your film. You had to depend on questionable sources. It's also interesting to see now how it is globalizing. Here is an example from Brazil, which was a, a, a award-winning, um, I think it was um, 2009 International Emmy Award for this uh, series. 206 episodes um, shown on TV Globo, one of the largest media companies in the world. And it was Brazilian actors playing Indian characters. It was set in India and Brazil. And it was an incred incredibly interesting story of these uh, two very distinct and very different uh, and, uh, you know, cultures and countries which have very little interactions, unlike you know, the diasporic connection like in Britain. There's no such connection, but this was a very successful um, example of cross-fertilization um, of popular culture. Even in China, which is um, again an interesting story there, because during the Cold War, Bollywood was very popular, not just in China, but also in uh, Eastern Europe and in Soviet Union, because Hollywood was not allowed in those countries. In more recent years, that has changed, because a lot of, you know, American films are now available in, uh, in uh, China. But this film, a 2009 uh, comedy called Three Idiots, was very successful in China because it was dealing with problems which are identifiable uh, by young people in China too. And since 2012, Indian television is also being allowed to operate uh, in, in China. And China remains the most important market in the world, not just in terms of numbers, but also revenues, it's increasingly important. And you've got—I can't talk about Bollywood and not mention this guy. He's—he's—he's uh, the—he's um, called King Khan. He's—he's he's the most um, visible face of Bollywood. And uh, as you see, he's on the cover of Paris Match. But on the other picture, he's actually at Yale University. He's making the dean dance to one of his songs of his film. Uh, 
Uh, it was very, you can see it on YouTube, I'm sure the, the Dean is quite uncomfortable, you know what to do because the song is not particularly good, the, dance, the tune is not good, but anyway. And he was invited to speak uh, at a forum where you have Nobel Prize winners and presidents and prime ministers. I think he was the first uh, celebrity to speak at that panel. In fact, in um, Austria, there is a, uh, apparently a group of people called Shah Rukhis and they meet regularly and show his films and dress up like him. And, and there was, in fact, a, a global Shah Rukh Khan um, conference held in, of all places, in Vienna, in a very, very uh, kind of interesting venue. Um, in fact, in academic terms, uh, Bollywood studies has now emerged as a kind of subfield within cinema studies. And where I'm based at my university, my co-director at the India Center is a very distinguished um, scholar of Bollywood. Um, so, you know, this is becoming increasingly um, important as, a, as an academic field of study as well. But what makes this popular culture visible globally is really the diaspora. Because if you go to many parts of the, you know, the kind of cosmopolitan world, whether it's New York or London, and you see who is actually watching these films, a majority is still diasporic audience. And the Indian diaspora is a very interesting phenomenon in itself because it is 25 million strong. It is the world's largest English-speaking diaspora. And as this um, map shows, it is scattered across the globe. And from a soft power perspective, it is the more cosmopolitan hubs of this globe where that presence becomes more important and more visible. So you go to any Ivy League university today, you're likely to see a Indian origin professor and she would be very good in what she does. And she's addressing a, a group of people from all over the world. And her first identity is Indian. The rest of it is secondary. First thing, oh, she's, well, we had an Indian professor, she was very good or in a corporate setting, or in the NGO world. That presence is increasingly visible, and that presence actually creates a certain amount of, um, uh, you know, changing the perception that these people can't do things properly. You know, we have to tell them what to do. And actually, they say, no, they're okay. They're actually doing better than us. And that's an interesting shift, mental shift, that a lot of people are making. The other thing I want to very quickly mention, which I think has relevance to the soft power argument, is the nature of India's demographics. Although it's an old civilization, a very complicated history, as I tried to do in my very potted version, it is a very young country. In fact, as this chart shows, if you compare it with other major regions and countries of the world, uh, apart from sub-Saharan Africa, it's India where there is growth. 70% of Indians are below the age of 35. That translates into 700 million people. Many of them are very poor and are likely to remain poor in the foreseeable future because the scale of poverty is so huge. This, the, the structural inequalities, the, the systemic problems, they're they not going to go away. But even out of that, 300 million were upwardly mobile, educated, aspirational, English fluent, at a time when there is a serious demographic problem in Northern uh, Hemisphere, in Japan, in Russia, in Europe, in, in, in the US. 
So in terms of how these educated people, when they travel around the world, what they bring with them and how that affects people's perception is an interesting area to think about. I know I'm speaking to a group of people with interest in journalism, so I thought I should at least have something to say about that. So my next slide is about that. While in terms of popular culture, you could argue that it has been a fantastically successful attempt to promote a particular version of India. It may have very little to do with the realities on the ground, but you could argue that Bollywood has created a certain buzz about India. I can't say the same thing about journalism. And I have to be very careful because I'm sitting opposite a very distinguished <laughs> Indian journalist whose work I admire. And it's doubly ironical because when India had very limited media industry, the journalism of that period, I'm talking Nehru's period and even after that, had a much more global remit and understanding of global issues. When I was a student in Delhi many years ago, there were more correspondents from Indian newspapers in London than is the case today in 2013. The media scene in India is flourishing. It's the most incredible and most complicated media systems in the world. It is not surprising that when Helen and Mancini do a comparative media systems in the world, they don't touch India. <laughs> it's too complicated. And you know, they're both friends and they're wonderful scholars and I've had one-to-one -one conversation at length at various occasions. I said, at least think about it. How can you make sense of this? Of course, every country is complicated. But I can't think of, unless we're talking about the whole of Europe, I can't think of another country where you have this level of complication in terms of just languages. Forget about everything else. So a country which was actually very involved in international journalistic debates, most pronounced was the 1970s and 80s debates within UNESCO about what was then called the New World Information Order. India was actually one of the major intellectual powerhouses of that debate. Today, when there are 188, and counting, there might be more, I don't know, 188 dedicated news channels in India, including many in English, including some doing excellent work like my colleagues, NDTV, the international affairs and the coverage of international issues is actually shrinking. And it's an interesting contradiction. At a time when India is globalizing, its economy is globalizing, its diaspora is globalizing, the windows on the world is actually are getting smaller. This is doubly problematic because now you have the technology. You don't, it, it is not like in the 70s you had to have all the wherewithal to, able, to be able to file a story. Now you can do it from your mobile phone. Last year, apart from NDTV, which has been operating for 25 years and is available around the world and has plans to go even further uh, you know, internationally, TV18 News was launched, which is part of CNN-IBN, another major Indian network. But the operations are so small, even in London, which is an important global media center, that they don't even have a continuity speaker, you know, continuity person. Doesn't matter. So you can, you know. And Doordarshan, which is the national broadcaster, is the only major broadcaster in the world which is not available outside India. The Chinese have two CNN, uh, sorry, uh, um, CCTV uh, news, which is 
in English language, and they have another one, Xinhua has launched a news network. The French have uh, an English language network. The Iranians have Press TV, Al Jazeera English, NHK World, Deutsche Welle. So non-English speaking journalism is available internationally because English, like it or not, is the language of global communication and commerce. But Doordarshan is not there. And if you get a chance, go and visit their mm -hmm. website and see how underdeveloped it is in a country which prides on its IT power. So in terms of journalism and its globalization from India, there is a huge gap. Partly, I think it's also to do with the geopolitical shift. That during the Cold War, there was an argument that we are not with America or we're not with Moscow. We have a position. Now it is less clear. And we cannot, so if you want to ask an average Indian, what is your view on Syria? I don't know, 120,000 people have died there. You must have a view. Listen, because you can count on fing your, finger, <laughs> your fingers how many times Syria has been mentioned in national news, especially private news. I have to say, Doodarshan, with all its many faults, it still has a segment on foreign affairs. So in terms of television news, the picture is very disappointing. And given that broadcasting is central to the soft power initiatives of many countries, particularly China, Indians have, for reasons beyond my comprehension, and I've had conversations with people who know much more than me about this, it's apathy, it is incompetent. I have no idea, but it, doesn't, it hasn't happened. But I'm much more hopeful with digital media, with the growing convergence between television and the internet, and where this demographic dividend I mentioned earlier is also going to be very relevant, where diasporic dimension is going to be very relevant. So if you look at the um, internet users around the world, these are the figures from 2012. India is already in the third place after China and the United States. Even then, when only about 12% of India's population was online, if you look at the four major websites, namely Google, YouTube, Facebook, and Wikipedia, both prominent websites, Indian presence was second only to the United States. Obviously because China doesn't figure in it, because Chinese have their own version of Facebook. Or, yeah? So excluding that, that was 2012. At the end of last year, the chap who heads Google India, he was at NDTV convention and he said the figure according to his data and he should know was 200 million. 200 million people in India had internet access. And just spare a thought about what will happen, because most of the people are now getting access through mobile internet. The infrastructure for old style internet doesn't, is not adequate. This is a chart which shows the shift from desktop to mobile internet from sort of middle of 2011. There are more people accessing internet on mobile than on on computers. Some industry estimates, and you have to be careful with industry estimates, they often exaggerate the numbers, but you get a fairly good idea. Say that by 2016, it will be 500 million, making India the world's largest free internet, world's largest English-speaking internet. Connect that with India's IT prowess, which arguably in intellectual terms is seen as the, great, the most obvious manifestation of Indian skills although a lot of what they do is derivative. 
the Indian Google on the horizon yet. And the, given the status of Indian universities and the kind of research they do and how or not do, it will take some time for them to actually develop um, that kind of originality. So, but the IT factor is important because as more and more people get online, more and more things are done through electronic commerce, these numbers become important. So think of what kind of internet will it be? Who would be the celebrities? What kind of jokes will be circulating? What will be the discourse like? Because we've been so conditioned to think about internet as the American, understandably it came from there. But they're already talking about a Chinese internet and a Shia internet and a Russian internet, you know. It's a fantastically interesting area. So in that digital future, I think India has a very important role to play. That doesn't mean that you know, everybody in India will be you know, having uh, the, something to say on the internet, but the excess is increasing very, very fast. And one of the most significant changes that across the Indian landmass, huge country, they have the railway network, the world's most congested railway network, and they're putting those um, fiber optics across the country, which would mean that access um, to villages will become a reality. It's already become to a large extent. So to my final slide, and I'll stop for some questions and disagreements. This journey through sort of Buddha to, to the internet, what does this tell us about the idea of soft power or the American version of that soft power, which is really very narrowly focused and you could argue that America is really a hard power. Just look at its military presence. And people listen to it because of its power, hard, not soft. In a case like India, or for that matter China, there's a different kind of a discourse about what constitutes influence. And perhaps that calls for a rethinking of the idea of soft power itself. And I have a chapter devoted in the book about that, just looking at what I've called a de-Americanizing soft power. The so-called rise of India in the last decade or so, along with the rise of China, is the big story. Partly because there is that worry, some of the points I made in my presentation, also reverberate in that discussion. That this is a serious country. It is not, it's not just a country, it's a civilization. So maybe they won't just listen to what we have to say to them. They might have their own, they might, fantastic book by an Indian historian, simply called the capacity to talk back. And that has a long history. It goes back all the way to Nalanda and beyond. What Amrita Sen has called argumentative Indian, the tradition of disagreement, is, is quite central to how Indians behave. It doesn't matter what status you are in. That, that argumentation is part of your life. So I don't think the wider world has really engaged with the cultural consequences of this phenomenon. They see it as a market, a source for cheap labor, outsourcing. 65%, 70% of global outsourcing happens in India. It's cheaper. But the, the fact that this is a very complicated culture, and that culture is you know, quite old and quite deeply embedded, which was not really, not really affected by 200 years of colonial rule, even today, 85% of Indians are Hindus. Religiosity is very important in people's lives. In a world where people are looking for straws to catch on in terms of you know, identity, and I think it's a very important resource. It's multilingualism, it's multi-religious. I mean, that's the most interesting aspect of India. 
And that's what I want to end on. Though my final point is about um, what that religious com complexity of India can bring to this soft power debate. And I want to just mention one point in that context. And that is the way Islam is represented in the world at <coughs> large. Although under Obama we don't call it the war on terror. But actually that, you know, how Islam is perceived and how Islam reacts to the Western modernity remains a central question for a lot of people in the world. And arguably, as we've seen in Syria, in Nigeria, in Somalia, there is actually a, an extension of that debate. It's moved beyond the, uh, the traditional places, if you like, to new territories. My reading of, inter I have a PhD in international relations, so my understanding of international relations is it's not going to go away. It will be there because it feeds a massive industry. So that is not going to go away. And within that, what contribution can a country like India with its soft power make is, remains an interesting question, especially in the context of this whole debate on clash of civilizations. Many people don't know this. But if the British imperialism had not divided India, it would be the largest Muslim country in the world. You would have Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, that will make it, India has 178 million Muslims. The second largest Muslim country in the world is India. That would make it 600 million plus. Although what we hear about religion in India is riots. If you do a systematic study, I mean, they are aberrations, not the rules and they are politically motivated, executed for extra-religious reasons. They are essentially political reasons. There is a very old tradition of living together and understanding the other in the way people in Europe or America do not. If you ask an average European what is Muharram, they have no idea. But if you are growing up in India, you, Muharram is a holiday at school, so you know Muharram is something to do with particular communities and this is what they do. There's a procession in the night in small towns, they see what, they, what, what they're mourning about. And say, well, this was you know, it's a long history of um, you know, Shias. So the whole idea of clash of civilization is really based on this sort of history of crusades. There's this idea of the other, especially in the case of the Islamic other, which is quite deeply in it, in, embedded in European thought. And the idea also of binarity, this, has to be contrasting. In India, that doesn't work. It's more complicated. It is not us and them. It's slightly more and more complicated. And, and, and in that context, the way Islam and its representation is going to continue in the coming years and decades, I think India will have an important role to play in that. That is not to say that it won't have problems domestically. They might continue. and. They, Actually, I'm sure they will continue because there's a political subtext to that. But in the global sphere, that multi-religiosity, that multilingualism, that multiculturalism is going to give a new dimension to Indian soft power. And if you combine that with what is coming in terms of digital revolution, it makes for a fantastic story. And on that note, I'll stop. Thank you. <laughs>